Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Alex. How are you? Still still around on your travels? But do you know what I've done this morning prior to recording this podcast? I don't. I have packed my car up. Very good. It now has every single thing that I've accumulated on three weeks of literary-based travels uh, in it. Books? Many, many books. Some lovely things that I bought from Kettle's Yard, where I visited for the very first time, Mm. which was wonderful. A lot of books and various things that people have given me on the way. So... You know, I have some hollyhock seeds from a friend, obviously. That's we good. To talk about gardening. I've got some, I suppose I shouldn't alert the customs to this. I've got some very special Normandy liqueur that I've been given mm. and various. So I'm driving back to Ireland, but I stayed to do a, an event last night at the British Library, which I'm delighted to say we're bringing to the TLS podcast. Yes, we're going to hear a bit later. We are going to hear a bit of it. And it was in a celebration of Hilary Mantel's life in writing on the publication of her collection of non-fiction, a memoir of my former self. And we had the actors Oscar Pierce and Lydia Leonard, uh, who were both in the stage productions of Wolf Hall and the director of those productions, Jeremy Herrin and the novelist Sarah Perry. And there we were chatting away at the British Library. It was absolutely lovely. And as you know, it's always particularly nice if you're a wild narcissist like I am, when somebody comes (laughs) up at the end and says, really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Of course. Yeah. But there are some people who think, oh, I'm really glad I didn't know you were in the audience before we sat down because I would have been very, very nervous. Can Mm -hmm. you imagine who was at an event for Hilary Mantel at the British Library? I mean, I don't think I can. I don't think I can imagine. I think you're going to have to tell me. Well, listeners and Lucy, it was Woody Harrelson. Whoa, no way. Whom I actually looked at and thought, well, there's obviously not Woody Harrelson, is it? Did you think, oh, who's that bloke who looks like Woody Harrelson? (laughs) He enjoyed the evening. How amazing. What did you say? Well, I'm afraid when he was saying, not to me, to the sort of assembled company, he said that was, I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Not doing Woody Harrelson's accent. But instead of saying, I'm so glad, tell me more. I said, thank you very much and ran away. (laughs) I just was absolutely amazed. Anyway, we are bringing you that, uh, dear listeners, a little bit, a little bit later in the show. But before that, we have Colin Jones revisiting the streets of Paris as the French Revolution approaches 
And then that very special extract from an event to celebrate Hilary Mantel's nonfiction at the British Library. But first, would you be surprised at the idea that citizens of Paris in the 1780s, far from being obsessed with a distant, disdainful monarchy and the price of bread, were more interested in crazes like mesmerism and ballooning? It is, on the face of it, a counterintuitive notion, yet it came from a distinguished historian of the revolution, Robert Darnton. He put the idea forward over 50 years ago and has now revisited it. And we are lucky enough to have Colin Jones, another such distinguished historian who has written about this for us. And he joins us today to lead us through the streets of revolutionary Paris. Colin, welcome. Many thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. So as I said just now, the, the idea, you came across his idea, didn't you, about 50 years ago, not in a book. How did that I, I come about? I know it's a really extraordinary uh, story, and uh, I think that listeners should um, get into their heads straight away the idea that this is the book we're going to be talking about, uh, Robert Danton's latest book, The Revolutionary Temper, which he had the idea of 60 years ago and did a lot of work on it. Obviously, he's done a lot of other things in those 60 years to become the very, very distinguished uh, historian he is. But uh, it was basically the uh, DPhil thesis that he did in Oxford in the 1960s. Now, a few years after he'd left, he's an American, he was a Rhodes Scholar in uh, Oxford. He went back to America to make his career. I was starting my own career and uh, with a PhD in Oxford, and people were telling me about this extraordinary thesis that uh, had been done by this uh, very brilliant American student, uh, which went totally against the way that we were all being taught to the origins of the French Revolution at that time. Because as you mentioned in the introduction, Everyone then was saying, well, the most important thing when you're looking at the outbreak of revolution in 1789 is the price of bread. Famously, the price of bread reached its uh, century-long uh, maximum in the middle of July, just when the Bastille has been stormed. And, OK, that's a bit mechanistic, but still, the idea was social and economic factors are the crucial things behind the uh, revolution. And uh, what Robert Danton did was say, well... No, in fact, ideas and what's uh, going around in people's minds was really, really important as well. He was very influenced by the movement that was very strong in Oxford, but throughout British universities at that time, of history from below, that we should tell the history of the past, not just through the uh, the social and political elite, but really from the point of view of um, people at the lower end of the uh, salary scales or, you know, the labouring classes or women or, or marginals of other sorts as well. So he got that, but he basically looked at ideas. And the way he got into this, I think, was, uh, I believe, was basically looking at some of the figures who are really important in radical politics in the early part of the revolution, people most famously like Marat, uh, mm. the, the famous uh, Marat. And he looked at what Marat had been doing, and he realized that in the 1780s, there's a sort of literary political world of writers like Marat, who are on the edge of the Enlightenment establishment and are trying to draw attention to themselves and to things they think important by making political issues of everything that people are interested in. So, as you say, it might be this the cult of mesmerism and the sort of laying on of hands and the convulsions that people have for healing purposes in the late 1780s. It might be ballooning. They're all turned into sort of political horror where people argue about the strength of the state, the need for reform, the need for a sort of popular uh, 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 perspective to be put on on political life 
Mm. There's this wonderful phrase, I don't know if it comes from you or from Danton, of, uh, that, that, that these people are from the low life of literature. <laughs> it's a bit that's, Marat that's and Brissot very, and Hébert. That's very much his angle, because, you know, what yeah. he says, that they're very, you know, it's really lasted well, this, this polarity, even though some people criticise it as being too stark. But he says, well, you know, the Enlightenment is all the high life of uh, Enlightenment. It's all people like Voltaire and Rousseau, all these, you know, canonical mm. authors that we all read and think are terribly, terribly important. But when you look at what people are most interested in and who they read, it tends to be a writing sort of scurrilous or, or you know, popular or populist in different ways, which are being written by what he calls a Grub Street uh, yeah. group. Grub and Street is a phrase used in England. He used it in Paris, and he calls them the low life, the high enlightenment, the sort of lofty ideas, as opposed to the low life, which are churning out the things which actually seem to be very trivial, but are actually very politicised as well. What's so interesting about that, as you describe it, you know, this incredible idea that Danton was was developing all this time ago, was that when we talk about it now, we think in a sense, well, of course, popular movements are important to the grand movements of history. You know, we know just if we look around us now that society isn't just one big idea, it's hundreds and hundreds of tiny ideas and people forming opinions from popular culture, from the texture of their everyday lives. It seems almost something that we would accept as, as almost kind of obvious now, but it obviously wasn't at that point when he started thinking about it. Yeah, and I mean, I think there is, you know, people are thinking at that time about social movements, you know, the, the groups which are working below, but they see them as more driven by economic factors rather than political or ideological ones. I think that's the crucial, crucial difference. And I think that what Danton talks about is actually very interesting in, in that regard, which is he says, well, you know, we tell ourselves all the time now that we live in an information society we're endlessly bombarded by uh, information from every every quarter and he says well look in the late 18th century it's a pre-electronic age clearly which is a big difference but actually when you look at it it's not so different that uh, people living in this big city of paris it's half a million people it's big for the for the 18th century they are you know, constantly getting information about what's going on in the city, in the wider world, beyond uh, French frontiers, etc. Partly through oral means, you know, which is always there. But one of the big sort of media changes over the 18th century has been the diffusion and generalization of newspapers, pamphlets, uh, sort of occasional uh, writings of one sort or another. So there's a sort of print revolution going on across the 18th century. Obviously, print is invented several centuries before, but really it's newspapers and periodicals which bring print and ideas into the minds of people. One of the other things which he's very good at, actually, is he's sort of saying, well, it is print, it is oral chat and rumour and conversations, all the rest. But it's other things as well. Song, he's really good, actually, on the way he sees revolutionary song as being one of the things which really helps convey and uh, make memorable particular uh, political views. He looks out for graffiti, you know, what people write on the walls, that sort of thing. So the, he gives us this really, really intense sense uh, in, in the book in a way which I think is, you know, there in the original thesis but which is incredibly enriched over his uh, you know 50 60 years career uh, since then of just the, the feel the feel of of what parisians must have been thinking about at a moment you know when the economy the government is going through this very severe crisis as it is in the late 1780s mm. 
Mm. Yes, it's that idea of what you can hear in the streets, what people are really talking about, the sense that, you know, Marat or, or people who are blowing up to their own advantage, people might are interested in ballooning. And then one of those guys comes along and says, yeah, but what does that mean? Who's doing the ballooning? Or I don't know, you know, I don't, how, who's paying for it? And he puts out a pamphlet and everyone reads it and says he's got a point. So it's not... I have to say, a, I was very, very struck by, I mean, why were people so interested in hot air ballooning? But it is absolutely extraordinary to a way that, um, you know, we can we find it difficult to imagine now just what ballooning means. Because, you know, when you think about it, no one's been higher than a very tall building or the top of a, a steeple or something. Suddenly, human beings can get in these machines and just go up and up and up and across. And it's important in itself, and it sort of changes people's perception of space, but it also changes people's perceptions of the future. It's like science fiction has come to earth. You know, this sort of thing has talked about before by various sort of literally precursors of science fiction, but it's actually making that material. And in the book, he talks about this. He talked about it in the thesis originally, but he sees it as a sort of new faith in science and that the potential of science for making things better, although quite frankly, what exactly is going to be better as a result of people going up in a balloon is not altogether <laughs> clear. They're still trying to work out the social and uh, the other uses of it. But it is absolutely extraordinary. And it is something which seizes people's imagination. And I guess also it's spectacular, isn't it? And I guess if you are there on the ground, mm. dire economic constraints oppressing you, this just seems kind of miraculous to you. It does seem like things can change. Yes, that's right. And it gives a sense of, well, you know, if, if human beings can do that, why can't they sort other things out? You know, it gives a sort of sense of potential, but also mm. it makes the present seem more, more problematic in some ways. I mean, I'll give you an example here, which is often mentioned, is that one of these balloons uh, drifts away from, quite a long way away from Paris, and then it develops a puncture and uh, collapses and the uh, famously the peasantry are completely they think it's some sort of monster that's fallen out of the heavens and they attack it with with pitchforks and everything like that so it's a quite extraordinary moment and it's just adding another dimension to people's conception of space but also as i say the future Mm. This is all, as you say, the book's called The Revolutionary Temper. It's about sort of hearing and feeling and, and helping us to hear and feel and see what's going on in the streets of Paris. And you, you say in your piece that you think that maybe that Danton's own experience of being in Berlin in 1989, do you think that would have fed into this thinking about the mood of the Parisians and how how these things come about? I have absolutely no doubt. He does mention it in the in, in the book, just as he mentions the origins back in the 1960s. But I think, you know, the 1980s and uh, late 80s in Berlin are something like what he says Paris is in the, uh, in the 1780s. That is, there's this extraordinary sense of, you know, something's happening and it's very remarkable. We don't quite know what it is and we want to get all the information is together before we take action. And something which seemed utterly, utterly impossible, politically impossible, suddenly becomes within the realm of the uh, of the possible. And I think mm. it is something that's very specific to many revolutionary or potentially revolutionary uh, moments. I mean, I was a student in the 1960s, I rem late 60s. I remember some of that sort of sense of, you know, this, things are going to change. It's going to be great. You know, the impossible can suddenly become possible. Well, that didn't work out very well in the long term. But uh, <laughs> but also the other example I thought about often in that case is, is the Arab Spring in the uh, 
mm. you know, 2011 and Tahrir, Tahrir Square must have been, you know, in the middle of Cairo, something like the middle of Paris in 1789. Everyone's sort of in, on tent hooks waiting to hear the latest rumour, you know, trying to to sort of pass it, trying to sort of um, work out what's right and what's not right, you know, and, so, and then this sort of sense of collectivity, the sense of working together, the sense of some, we can do things which can change things. And I think that sense, which he really did pick up in uh, Berlin in the 1980s, a very interesting book that he wrote uh, on that uh, moment called Berlin uh, Journal, you find a very similar sort of approach for Paris in the uh, late 80s. Well, it's so interesting, you know, you make the point in the review and you just alluded to it just then, you know, when we think about an uprising in recent years and so much is said about how the crux point of the smartphone and social media as being able to kind of accelerate those moments and, and bring yeah. people together and connect people. And you make the point that, that there was just as much of an information culture in Paris, obviously, in a completely different context, a completely different way. But the, the sort of technology, in a sense, was kind of there. And that perhaps also hasn't been ex or hadn't been explored before, before Robert Danton's theorising about it. Yeah, I think I agree with Danton that technology is never the answer to everything. You know, there has to be a sort of sense of a, a need or a, a sense of a bigger project which technology can help. Another example for that between the 1780s and the uh, 1980s would be Algeria in the late 1950s, where the transistor radio actually is incredibly important in making a lot of French troops in Algeria turn against their generals over the wish to attack France over the Algerian uh, settlement. So I think this idea of technology is there, but actually there's a sort of human thing going on here, which is beyond technology. And people use the, the techniques, the technology, the tr transmission of information and news which is to hand it can be just oral transmission but often print other things as well when you say about oral transmission it, it seemed to me that there was a lot of basically talk and people saying what's going on what's the news a lot of gossip and rumor and now is this right i think i've read this in the just i haven't read the book but i've managed to read a bit of it a bit at the beginning and that there's a particular tree in the palais royal and people would gather under the tree. Yeah. I suppose it was a bit like Speaker's Corner and sort of say, well, yes. this is what's going on and that's what's going on. And then and if someone was talking absolute rubbish, that there was a the, the branches would crack <laughs> and they would. Or that was the idea that, you know, they would say, no, that's fake news. That's a load of rubbish. But, you know, this other guy is telling the truth. So a lot of it was disseminated that way, wasn't it? Yes, I think one of the things which he's picked up on and which, you know, is quite well known by other historians, but he's really sort of using it in a very pointed way, is the development of what people call in the 18th century the public sphere. So in other words, people, that sort of oral transmission and conversation isn't just going on in families and workplaces, but lots of in new types of institutions are emerging where people can come together, talk, read newspapers, discuss the newspapers, disagree and all the rest of it. So it's the emergence of, of coffee houses. You know, we go into Starbucks now and what we see is people sitting silently at their uh, laptops. You go into a coffee house in the, 19, in the 1780s, it's full of people talking <laughs> and uh, reading newspapers and yelling at each other. Mm. Newspapers, public gardens like the Palais Royal, Freemasonic lodges, the, you know, the, the lobbies of theatres, lots of public spaces, public gardens, public theatres, uh, where people come together and discuss and things. So there's this sort of 18th century has been important in terms of periodicals and things like that and newspapers, but also places where people come together and talk and can talk and can get a sense of a collectivity, if you like. Mm. 
So do you buy the whole argument? Do you buy that Danton's whole idea that basically all of Paris, more or less, was of this revolutionary temper, was sort of of one mind? I'm in two minds about it, actually, quite honestly. I do think he's got something which is absolutely vital at that moment, uh, this sense of people feeling that they're you know, part of this collectivity that's going to you know, produce historical uh, epoch-making change. But I think it is possibly more restricted than he thinks. I mean, uh, as I say, if in the 1960s, we all remember that sense that everyone agreed with us all the time. Well, frankly, they didn't. And I'm not sure that all Parisians even uh, would actually have agreed with the sort of things that people were talking about around the tree uh, that you mentioned or in some of the elite coffee houses of, of the centre. So I think that the social resonance of those ideas, even within the city, should be looked at more carefully, I think, than uh, he's able to do, obviously, and within the single book. I also think, you know, when we look at the causes of the revolution, where the revolution came from, that's definitely one, one area that it comes from. But actually, there are 20 million peasants in France who are actually incredibly important as well. And I think it would be quite difficult for him to say, as he's, he seems to say once or twice, that the sort of thing going on in Paris is probably going on throughout the rest of uh, France. It may be, I think it'd be much more likely to be much more diluted and not so significant. But at this strategic moment, strategic location, Paris at that time political crisis, economic, financial crisis, it's really, really important. But as I say, the wider resonance, the wider applicability and quite how we t we get that sort of narrative into a more analytical frame for understanding where the uh, crisis came from. So, for example, with the Berlin Wall, clearly that sense of you know what was going on in Berlin, the Berlin crowds, really important. But if we're trying to say, well, why the wall fell, we'd probably look for a more structural uh, long distance factors, if you like, as well as, the, as a, that sort of sense of effervescence uh, that you get in the cr in crowds mm. interested in you know and I suppose this is is related you know you are yourself interested in thinking about that idea of what temper means what the word temper means in this sense it's not temperament it's not mood quite it's I suppose it's quite an abstract word but it's key to understanding the, the kind of limits and the possibilities of this idea of of how everybody reacted isn't it Yes, you know, I, I did find that really unusual, that, that word. And I honestly can't think of anyone who's ever uh, used it, uh, any historian who's ever used it before. And then I sort of looked around a bit and tried to do a bit of research on it. And I, I noticed that in the... Um, it's one of the epigraphs at the beginning of the book. He quotes Henry James. And actually, Henry James does use the word temper in quite a similar way when he's talking in one of his novels about how Paris, the sort of feeling coming off the streets, was rather like that in, of a revolutionary day. I think he might have picked it up from Henry James, but I think he's trying to get a sort of something that's new and different. I mean, a mood. Uh, a mentality that was one of the things that people have suggested he might might be thinking about uh, something which isn't just a sort of a single idea but a, a sort of basic way of thinking or a, a a gateway if you like into uh specific actions but which is there in a sort of gut feeling uh type of way and i think he's it is an unusual one i wonder whether it's going to catch on or whether people are going to say well that whatever the virtues of the book that term may need a bit of um, careful consideration before we take it on because it is a bit vague I think but but it is getting what he's trying to get at is that sort of sense of a gut feeling and I think he didn't want to use that phrase okay he wanted to, to uh, uh, produce a new term but it's something which I'm sure readers will think about. Mm. 
So your most recent book, Colin, which came out earlier this year, that's about the 24 hours, isn't it? Just before the downfall of uh, Robespierre. So are you doing a similar thing, but in a much, much more intense kind of feverish way? Yes, that's right. I think in some ways it's very similar to what uh, Bob Dancer's doing. And that sense of a mood and a popular mood which suddenly changes and can go in a completely different direction is absolutely one of the things that I was trying to get hold of when I was looking at uh, uh, the day on which Robespierre fell, where originally people wouldn't have you know, given a, a moment's thought. He seemed to be solidly in a uh, position of uh, power. Uh, and then 24 hours, everyone said, well, it was obvious he was going to fall, you know, and uh, mm. and let's move on. But for me, one of the things about that was the role of contingency, things happening, and how that can change the mood. And I think it is a sort of way of thinking about history, which tends to be rather short term. So I'm not saying it has to be within 24 hours. But I think what Bob Danton's doing in his book is suggesting this temper is something which is gradually accumulated. And there's a sort of process of accretion, if you like, some, you know, intensification some falling away and then at this moment you know everyone's primed and ready to go so i think there is a difference and i i think the time scale thing would be the factor that we we differed on while accepting mm. that you know trying to get down there on the streets in the coffee houses in the bars as well as in people's uh, homes and get a sense of what people are feeling that's absolutely uh, what we we both are really were trying to do mm. colin many thanks for joining us today to come on the show Hilary Mantel celebrated at the British Library and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Now we are really delighted to bring you an extract from an event that took place earlier in the week at the British Library, a celebration of Hilary Mantel, A Life in Writing, on the publication of her book of non-fiction, A Memoir of My Former Self. I was joined by novelist Sarah Perry, actors Oscar Pierce and Lydia Leonard, and by the director of the stage versions of Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, Jeremy Herrin. I wouldn't for a minute say that, that um, I was a friend to Hillary, but I was very friendly with her and our paths crossed a lot over the years in interviews and on stages and occasionally uh, privately. And I had hoped that they would cross a lot more because I live in Ireland and she was about to move to Ireland and we talked a lot about the things that we yeah. might be fun to explore there. But I have to say, the time that we flew to Russia on a, a, a shady, sort of a slightly unexplained cultural mission that we all suspected we might be the sort of cultural fig leaf to something spy going on. <laughs> uh, but we didn't think about that for too long because we lost our luggage on the way. And when we said, oh, look, we really do need some things, we got taken to a sort of indoor market. This was not sophisticated Moscow at all. Um, it was quite remote. And we said, well, we must at very least get some knickers. Uh, and we were taken to a store where a man just held up these huge knickers for both of us all. And now, I told this story a lot of times. And I said to her once, I'm, I'm really sorry, I do keep telling that story and you're actually getting famouser and famouser and perhaps I shouldn't. And she said, Alex, I've dined out on it for years. <laughs> so there we are. Uh, the, the coda to that is that our luggage arrived on the plane that was taking us out the next day. But that is, so it is. Um, we are going to begin. Oh. With not yet, oh, I've yeah. introduced okay. you. <laughs> we are going to begin when I've introduced my guests. I've, of course, got the amazing novelist Sarah Perry, wonderful Oscar Pierce and Lydia Leonard, actors in Wolf Hall, and Jeremy Herrin, the director of the RSC uh, Productions. Thank you so much all for joining us. Now, Oscar, my it is your moment. Okay, go on, go on May that. you okay. read us uh, a little bit. Of okay. Thank you so much. Just got to yeah, hear my own voice through the microphone and hope I don't blow the speakers. <laughs> Across the Narrow Sea, Putney, 1500. So now get up! Felled, dazed, silent, he has fallen, knocked full length on the cobbles of the yard. His head turned sideways. His eyes are turned out towards the gate as if someone might arrive to help him out. One blow, properly placed, could kill him now. Blood from the gash on his head, which was his father's first effort, is trickling across his face. Add to this, his left eye is blinded, but if he squints sideways with his right eye, he can see that the stitching of his father's boot is unravelling. The twine has sprung clear of the leather and a hard knot in it has caught his eyebrow and opened another cut. So, now get up! Walter is roaring down at him, working out where to kick him next. He lifts his head an inch or two and moves forward on his belly, trying to do so without exposing his hand, which Walter enjoys stamping 
What are you, an eel? His parent asks. He trots backwards, gathers pace and aims another kick. It knocks the last breath out of him. He thinks it may be his last. His forehead returns to the ground and he lies waiting for Walter to jump on him. The dog, Bella, is barking, shut away, shut away in an outhouse. I'll miss my dog, he thinks. The yard smells of beer and blood. Someone is shouting down on the riverbank. Nothing hurts, or perhaps it's that everything hurts, because there's no separate pain he can pick out. But the cold strikes him, just in one place, just through his cheekbone as it rests on the cobbles. Look now, look now, Walter bellows. He hops on one foot as if he's dancing. Look what I've done, burst my boot kicking your head. Inch by inch, inch by inch forward. Never mind what he calls you, an eel or a worm or a snake. Head down, don't provoke him. His nose is clotted with blood and he has to open his mouth to breathe. His father's momentary distraction at the loss of his good boot allows him the leisure to vomit. Oh yeah, that's right, Walter yells. Spew everywhere. Spew everywhere on my cobbles. Come on, boy, get up. Let's see you get up by the blood of creeping Christ. Stand on your feet. Creeping Christ, he thinks. What does he mean? His head turns sideways. His hair rests on his own vomit. The dog barks, Walter roars, and bells peal out across the street. He feels a sensation of movement, as if the filthy ground has become the Thames. It gives and sways beneath him. He lets out his breath. One great final gasp. You've done it this time. A voice tells Walter, but he closes his ears, or God closes them for him, and he is pulled downstream on a deep black tide. much that really I mean that amazing opening to what was going to be a project that went on for many many years um, I'm going to talk to Sarah a bit about historical fiction now but I please do all jump in whenever <laughs> you wish we're going to make this as, as a round table of conversation as we can um, but Sarah I, mean, I suppose one of the things to start with is just this vexed endless business of what historical fiction <laughs> is, I know. Um, you have written it, I suppose, although you might say you've never written it. That's not what your novels are. And Hilary, I wonder, was she the same? Did you talk about it? We, um, she attended an event um, that I was speaking at because she had a literary festival in Budley Salterton. I don't know why that name is funny, but it always makes me <laughs> smile. Um, and I was... Um, talking about Melmoth, my third novel, which has some historical components to it. And I remember seeing her in the audience and feeling sort of, you know, like the Pope had turned up at a christening. <laughs> and um, while she was there, I remembered something that she had said about historical fiction. 
and mentioned it on stage, which is that all fiction is historical fiction. If I were to write a contemporary novel, um, you know, go home and start tonight with what the traffic was like outside the British Library, by the time it had been written and rewritten and edited and proofread and published, it would already be dated. And I think the question of what constitutes historical fiction is political, right? Because it tends to be ladies' fiction that is categorised mm -hmm. as historical fiction, women novelists who are called historical novelists. It gives it a sense of kind of dustiness, of lack of moral rigour, lack of um, sort of um, essential speaking to the time. And I think what these books have demonstrated is that they are not about the past, they are about now, they are about power and avarice and striving and nobility and lack of. Um, and her books, of, of all books, really kind of defy the need to even have a category of historical fiction because they're so above and beyond and underneath that. Mm. Mm. And not just not just these among her novels either. No, I mean, certainly. Gabby was mentioning the giant O'Brien, yeah. which has is so interesting on the relationship between this country and Ireland. Yeah. Um, she talks in many pieces in this collection of her own vexed relationship with Englishness and with Irishness. Um, but of course, her first novel, the first novel that she wrote. Place of Greater Safety, which was not her first novel no. published for this very reason, yes. right? Because yeah. she couldn't find a publisher who thought people would want to read that kind of thing. Yeah. And it turns out they did. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of my favourite of her books is Flood, which is kind of the connoisseur's Hilary Mantel novel. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and that's set in the 50s. And it's a gothic novel. It's a novel about religion. It's a mini horror novel. It's very funny. Um, and it's, there's, there's a sense that, as she writes, in Mantel time, that all of her novels, wherever they're set, are specific to her view of the world, her construction of it through language and through imagery, uh, she sort of moves like a kind of untime-bound character through history. Um, and I, I kind of bristle when I'm referred to as a historical novelist. When Hilary Mantel is referred to one, I sort of draw out my knives because mm -hmm. it, it just cannot speak to the, the breadth and the rigour of the books. But she did say um, repeatedly and vociferously, didn't she, that... People who lived in times particularly long ago were not just us in old clothes. Yes. She was conscious that there was a difference between writing about the now that we actually have a living memory of and somewhere where we don't. Absolutely. And that was really very, very important to her, wasn't it? Yeah, particularly when it came to religion, because she, she was very assertive about the fact that Wolf Hall, uh, the whole trilogy, cannot work unless the reader really believes that the question of the immortal soul is a kind of daily struggle for the characters, that this is not a, a kind of um, framework where you give lip service to the church and, and you know, you might not eat meat on Fridays, but it w they really did believe in a, in a, in a literal heaven, heaven and hell to sort of certain extents. The church really did have that power. But I think what she shows is that they are specific and universal to exactly the same degree, because while we do not necessarily, in a secular age, have precisely those essential worldviews. We do have others. So they function of kind of proxies for what drive us. It may mm. not be religious faith in a kind of post-Reformation um, 
tussle of the conscience, but we still have it. So they are very specific, but they're also, they have that universal quality, I think. She was quite amazing to talk to about religion and about faith, because you would get quite a long way through a conversation, and then she'd say something like, but it's all metaphor, and that would be it, and of course it was. I just wonder, bringing the, the others in, before we sort of talk more uh, about um, the, the staging and the adaptations, but that idea, we always talk about historical fiction in terms of, of novels and, and written, the written word, but I don't know how it feels to directors and actors, whether you think, okay, how do we embody something which is the past, but still we're embodying it with our present selves? I, can I say what I was saying earlier? Because I've remembered what it was. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> We were, we were all having chats earlier, and I've got to say the thing. That, and I was running around saying, save said. it for the stage. Um, so, yeah, I, I, for, certainly for, for these play, the two that I was in, uh, the, everything happens in the present on the stage. It necessarily has to happen in the now. So even though you're wearing, and this is the case with Shakespeare as well, that you're kind of wearing these old costumes, that everything happens in the present. And that's what's very clear with Hillary's work, including Place of Greatest Safety as well, is that everything happens in the now. And I think that translates itself very much to when you're doing a play, because you have to, you're never talking about, the, I mean, you talk about backstory, but when you're playing the scene, the scene happens in the present, in the now. That's it. <laughs> Not much better when I said it earlier. <laughs> You've got it out there, you've said it. <laughs> Jeremy. Yeah, but that's great what you were saying, Sarah, because I remember having similar conversations with Hillary at the start of the, the whole journey about, you know, trying to blow the dust off the characters and find out what made them contemporary and what made them resonate now. And the thing about, you know, the, the very, the reality of hell was something that really was very instructive and very, very helpful. And all sorts of sort of other cultural things that she was just great about, that she was, I remember having a really interesting conversation about, um, British culture and what we would imagine British culture to be in the Tudor period. Uh, and she describes it as much more of a sort of European um, thing, that, that people were in their bodies much more than a kind of post-Victorian British male would be, that the men were sporty and very um, touchy-feely. And there was a sort of... So all of those things were just, were just great examples of her stripping away layers and layers of inappropriately applied history to get to the real people. And I think it's fantastic that she zoned in on a character who had been there all along and everyone had misunderstood. Or at least that's how we feel about it now, because we feel that the precision of her character work on Cromwell is just so authoritative that that must be how <clears throat> Cromwell was. Yes. And that he was there all along in the background of uh, a single... Holbein portrait, and she was the person that really understood he was at the centre of all of these ideas. Mm. Um, and so far from becoming a historical piece of um, theatricalia in Stratford, it did feel like a very present, transactional bit of politics on stage. Yeah. I mean, Anne Boleyn is someone we think we know mm. so well. Um, and I found it interesting, you know, reading this book again, just as saying, you know, we, we do think 
just because of the way that things have been presented to us, that everybody's teeth were falling out. Yeah. And, and they just weren't. And mm. actually, they lived a completely different life. Did, when, in your portrayal, mm. did you, how did you yeah. find <clears throat> out? It was, it was a, a, an extraordinary and uh, wonderful and the privilege of my career to, well, working with Hillary and p playing Anne, a woman with such sort of potent, uh, potent symbols, for, you know, reimagined by different generations. And yeah, going back to uh, we we very much became it sounds a bit loveyish, but like a family. And there obviously are real people, and it's history. And it did feel with the the it took us over, I think, in a quite a ghosty way. They were very present and live. We had Hillary there to ask. It was such a wealth of information to ask any little details about anything. And so and also consequently the the actors we subconsciously started treating each other like mm. the characters. So. It was it's quite nice in, yeah. until it wasn't nice to play Amberlynn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> imagine it was good, 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 good yeah, and then bad, bad. <laughs> really yeah. bad. Yeah, but um, it, yeah, it was also but that was so accurate that she she was incredibly present during the rehearsals and and during production. She was really a part of the story, and so and she was writing Mirror in the Light as we were working in the in the West End, and obviously it did the shows did very well, and that helped. But she was it was always. She, she kind of gave us help with the, with the characters, so we kind of became the characters from the book. And so when The Mirror and the Light came out some year, you know, when was it? Two, three years ago? Mm. Two years. Anyway, it was a long, long break from us finishing the, sh the show before it was uh, published. And it felt like, reading it, it felt like being backstage. It felt like the characters that she'd written were influenced by our performances and there were kind of an extension of the work that we'd done on the plays it was did you find that uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah pierre uh, the um christophe of course she, yeah yeah she did she told pierre that yeah. she'd added something yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah but she said that that she'd added and was in fact like some of the characters in the mirror of the light were named after some of the actors that were playing small and sort of unnamed okay. parts in We'll fall and bring up wow, the bodies. I didn't know like that. Bastings, know the boatman, Basting, I don't know if yeah. you remember him, was um, yes. Ben Hastings, who we called Bastings, so as not to confuse him with <laughs> Ben Miles. Ben. And then Bastings <laughs> is now immortalised. <laughs> because he was such a great, he was just great as the boatman. Yeah. And uh, Hillary created the character. Sarah, I wanted to ask you, before we have another reading, Lydia's going to read a, a bit from the book about this business of adaptation. But I wanted to, to ask you about the novels, watching them come along over this period, both how you felt as a reader and, and as another writer, as a writer to whom they clearly spoke. It, it's really hard to articulate their significance without sounding extraordinarily hubristic and pretentious. Because I, what I want to say is that she was, throughout my, the ten years of my publishing career to date, been a kind of touchstone in, in moments of, of real distress, uh, physical distress and professional distress and psychic distress. Something would appear in print almost supernaturally, and those of us who've met her in person will testify there was something otherworldly about her physical presence, almost fairy-like. She mm. was very short, and her skin was very silken. Mm. And I remember when I met her and she kissed me, and her cheek was like a silk scarf mm. because her skin was so frail and fine. 
And so she appeared to me as this kind of um, almost like mischievously half demon, half angel presence. And so when I endured a period of intense physical pain, I came across Ink in the Blood, her essay on suffering. And when I was really struggling with the fact that my writing is... I'm laughing, it's not actually that funny to me, but my writing is, is, is sort of very old-fashioned. And I had... My first book had had... I was rejected by every publisher in England um, as being too odd and, and too old-fashioned. And at a moment when I felt the one thing that I ever wanted to do with my life, I couldn't do. I wasn't good enough. And I read um, Beyond Black mm. um, and understood that there is a way of speaking about wickedness and speaking about other worlds beyond what we perceive in a way that is intelligent and mischievous and questioning and funny and dark. And that although I could never possibly attain the skill that, that she has, at least there was a model for it. And until that moment, I'd been just terribly lonely. And actually, the first... Um, piece of fan mail that I've ever written, first and last fan letter I've ever written, was when I was, I was doing a job, uh, I, c I couldn't get published, you know, nobody wanted me, I had a proper job, um, and was reading Giving Up the Ghost, and locked myself into the lavatories, ironically at Lincoln's Inn, where I was working at the time, um, and, and w finished it in, in the loose at Lincoln's Inn, and wept, and came out and wrote about four A4 sides of a love letter, and saying, you're, like, you're here. I, I now have someone who had a religious upbringing, who lived in this world where religiosity had fabric. It, it wasn't just a sort of absurdity. It was, in some sense, real. And I didn't hear from her for about a year. And then just about when I'd got a, finally got a publishing contract with wonderful Serpent's Tale, um, I um, opened the letterbox in my flat in London and there was a small white envelope addressed to me in genuinely what looked like a quill. <laughs> and, and on the back was one of those little labels that you used to yeah. be able to get showing your address. And it had a black cat on it and it said Hilary Mantel and had her address in Budley Salterdon. And she had written me a card with a blackbird on it and said, thank you for your letter, and, and my book had just been favourably reviewed in The Guardian. I've seen your reviews. You must be so happy. You must be so proud. Congratulations. And from then on, we occasionally corresponded. So It was very much that sense, wasn't it, from, from you know, the perspective of the way she talked about it as a novelist, and then, of course, um, all the work that she did with the adaptations and her involvement with them. She did regard it as the work of her lifetime, didn't she? I mean, I don't think that means she was breaking with her previous work, but she, I think she described it in an interview um, that she gave to me as just being able to suddenly do an enormous shout. And that moment of suddenly feeling she'd come into her own. I mean, how do you know that mm -hmm. as a novelist? How do you know that as a creator of any art form, I wonder? I remember her saying that she had willingly given up the vast majority of her friends and acquaintances for the sake of work. <laughs> and I found that a really extraordinarily uh, courageous thing to say, perhaps especially for a woman who is expected to do a certain amount of social and emotional labour in the family. But to privilege her work above friendship was such an astounding thing to say, and I believed it absolutely. And one of the amazing things about her was that she contained all these contradictions. And I, reading this, I kept thinking, that's not what you said the last time I read you on this subject. And, and 
And so she would say that, which is quite a brutal thing to say, quite a hard thing to yeah. say. And yet she was the most unfailingly kind and generous writer I've met, actually. Yeah. You know, unrelentingly supportive of up-and-coming, you know, new writers, so generous with her time and her correspondence. Um, and so she just sort of contained these impossible sets of contradictions because she was such a sort of complicated... Um, psyche in some ways and I think that there is I feel this and I'm sure all of us here do that there, that you're seized with a sense of the importance of a piece of work that's underway where I know that I have sort of sacrificed health and and all sorts of things for the sake of a book and and I think that that's necessary and I think that that's okay and I think the thing with Hillary is that she had authority so the authority and the rigour and the toughness that you see in her prose, she felt about herself. Mm. So we might, I might feel ashamed if I would say I would genuinely rather like not see any of my friends ever again if it meant I could write a book like <laughs> Wolf Hall. <laughs> <laughs> I would never say that, yeah. would I? Mm. But yeah. she can say mm, that kind yeah. of thing because she knew her mind, like you mm. were saying so yeah. well, that it, I don't think it would have occurred to her that that could be seen as in some way cold yeah. or... Um, as a company, how did that sort of transmit itself to you? What do you take from that when you think, okay, we are embarked on, you know, conveying in a different medium someone's life's work? Or do you just have to not think that? No, I mean, she made it very easy. So mm. the, 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 the terrifying, I don't think I've probably ever been as professionally terrified as the days between being offered the job or you know, asked to talk, to think about the job and meeting Hillary. Mm. and that mm. being part of the process. And I'd read the first one, and I very quickly had to read the second one and just thought, oh, my God, what am I going to say that is going to be in any way impressive enough to land me this thing that I really want to do? What did you say? I can't remember. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I think I probably just got her talking, and <laughs> it's, it sort of continued from there. But um, she... So she, yeah, she, she picked you for... She, she, I think I was set up and then I had yeah. a meeting and then she didn't disapprove. Mm. And then we got you don't on. want to blow the blind we, date, though, there, do you? Yeah. No. You don't want to just No, no, really... that's what I felt like yeah. I could mess it mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, she was so authoritative in, in work, in her writing, that I wondered what she would be like um, socially. And actually, she was incredibly generous and very, very naughty and very <laughs> mischievous and say um just the thing that everybody was thinking but she would just give it the right phrase mm. and would, <laughs> i mean would quite mercilessly naughty mm. sometimes yeah but <laughs> but in the process what, what i was going to go on to say was instead of it being a question of here's the writer and we've got to impress her and we've got the energy is about not betraying what she's written it was much more about that she was on she was on the front row basically lapping it up and you'll probably remember as well as i do the way she sat, it felt like she sat on the edge of the seat, mm. very with a very straight back, mm. drinking it all yeah. in and yeah. just ready to laugh yeah. and smile and just turn around and give a thumbs up and mm. just be a very, very sort of present, uh, very generous presence, very ready to laugh. Yeah. And it made it, it made it much easier than some of our other colleagues who were reserved and judgmental. And she, Hillary mm. was there and she was having a great time and that just gave us great permission. Yeah, and gave and uh, was probably the easiest in terms of an actor, not so much for Jeremy, who had to stage her, which was, was a huge feat. 
but in terms of having Hillary there, you know, it's not like you, there, there wasn't a series of choices one needed to make about the character. It was just all there in the book, mm. and so you just yeah lent into that, and she was so supportive. Yeah. That was an extract from Hilary Mantel, A Life in Writing, which was an evening at the British Library hosted by Alex Clark, who will be writing about this book for us in a forthcoming issue of the TLS. have time for this week. Our thanks go to Colin Jones and our friends at the British Library. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me Alex Clark. Goodbye. <laughs>